Well, good morning, and take your Bible, if you will, and turn to the book of Acts. We're going to get back into our study in the book of Acts this morning, and uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 23, and we're going to go into Acts chapter 24. And I've titled the message this morning, Righteousness, Self-Control, and the Judgment to Come. Some of you that know a little bit about the Bible might recognize that phrase because that is what the Bible says Paul shared with the governor of Judea, Felix, and his wife Drusilla uh, when he had the opportunity to stand before them. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. But we're not yet in front of Governor Felix. We're still, um, Paul is still imprisoned, if you will, in Jerusalem. And uh, we're going to pick back up in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And just in way of review, you'll remember he had been assaulted by a Jewish mob when he was in the temple in Jerusalem. And they were about to beat him to death. But the Roman governor, or I'm sorry, the Roman commander there in Jerusalem of the garrison heard about it. Basically a riot going on. So he sent his soldiers to find out what was going on. Rescued Paul from the mob. Took him in. And, of course, he tried to find out what was going on, and Paul defended himself before the mob, if you'll remember. And then they shouted him down, and and the Roman soldiers took him inside. And the next morning, he met before the Sanhedrin, and he defended himself once again. And again, a riot, almost a riot, broke out uh, when Paul made the statement, it is for the resurrection of the dead that I stand here. Now, Paul was uh, a Jew. He was raised a Pharisee. And he knew that the two groups of the two factions in that, in that Sanhedrin were the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees who did. And uh, Paul, he's going to almost apologize for that in, in his statement before the governor. He knew that was going to cause a problem. And that's the why he said it. So he shouted that out. And uh, an argument broke out and the Pharisees said, well, you know, he sounds like a pretty good guy to us. I'm not so sure he is a bad guy. And the Sadducees, they argued about that. So the governor again took Paul and and brought him back into uh, his uh, imprisonment and kept him there safely in jail. And you'll remember in Acts 23 verse 11, Paul had a vision. And I shared that if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that there are six times that the Apostle Paul has a vision from the Lord. And this is the fifth of those six visions. And here's what the Lord told him in verse 11 of Acts chapter 23. It says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. And you take that vision... The Lord gives Paul three words. He gives him an admonition. He says, be of good cheer, Paul. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. But be of good cheer. And he gives him two more uh, affirmations, if you are, or an affirmation and a direction. He says, just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify for me in Rome. So he said, Paul, don't worry. I have a purpose for the pressure that you're under. You remember that's what we titled the message a couple of weeks ago. There's a purpose. You are testifying of me, of your faith in me, before this hostile crowd in Jerusalem. You're going to testify of me before the governor here in Judea. And Paul, that's not all. My purpose for you is to go to Rome 
the seat of power in the ancient world, and there in Rome, Paul, you're also going to testify for me. I have a purpose for you. So that vision encouraged Paul. And then we find out in verse 12 that a plot arises. Now, it's one thing to understand that if God has a purpose for your life, and I believe with all my heart, God has a purpose for everybody here. We're going to baptize little Noah. Uh, This morning, as soon as the uh, uh, normal service is over, we're going to have that baptism. And God has a purpose for Noah's life. I believe that. He has a purpose for my life. He has a purpose for your life. If you're here this morning and you're breathing, God has a purpose for your life. And just as sure as God has a purpose for your life, Satan desires to thwart that purpose. He desires to destroy that purpose, to steer you away from that purpose, that direction that God has for your life. Such it was with Paul. The Lord came to Paul and Paul had been a faithful servant. He says, you've testified for me, Paul, in Jerusalem. I have a purpose. You're going to testify for me in Rome. But the devil was at work and the devil always has his crew, if you will, that are going to try to steer you from God's purpose. And here we have, if he can't convince you and steer you, he'll try to destroy you. And that's what he was going to do in Paul's life. Verse 12, it says, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And I've often said, I bet those are some hungry folks. Because they never did kill Paul, but they, they bound themselves by an oath, we will not eat or drink until we kill this man Paul. He says, now there was more than 40 men who formed this conspiracy. So they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we bound ourselves under an oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, Paul's nephew, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. And the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though you were, they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. Now, Paul is a servant of God. I think anybody that has any respect for the word of God, even non-Christians would certainly agree that if there ever was a man who believed in Christianity, it was the apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a godly man. But here we see that Paul was not immune from trouble. And I fear that there's a great heresy that goes about in our modern world. We are all very selfish. And I admit I am the most selfish of all. Lord reminds me about that from time to time. But I, I am very selfish. And that's just my nature. And, and I hate to bust your bubble, but you're selfish too. 
And if you don't admit it, you're either a liar or greatly deceived, one or the other. But we are all selfish. And it is human nature. And if you listen to much of what people tell other people about Christianity and the way we try to influence people and convince them to become Christians like we are, is we say, listen, become a Christian, and boy, it's wonderful. It's great. Great things are going to happen. Now, I agree with a lot of that. The Bible calls it joy inexpressible and full of glory. There's nothing like having peace with God and joy in your soul. But my friend, it is a lie to think that if you follow Jesus, you're going to have a charmed life. I want you to know Paul here was just in the center of God's will. He was doing everything exactly like God wanted him to do, and yet people are trying to kill him. And let me just tell you over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, I'm going to read this to you just to give you an idea. If you want to try to figure out how many times did they try to kill the Apostle Paul while he was preaching. We don't know. But Paul did give us a little window into some of the problems he had. And over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the context of this passage I'm going to read to you, there were some false teachers in Corinth trying to draw... Uh, the church at Corinth away, and Paul was having to argue with them and explain to them that he was a true servant of God and that these false teachers were leading them astray. And part of the way that he explained it, he told them all the things that he had suffered to bring the gospel to them. And I want you to just listen to some of the things that this great man of God went through. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 23 I'll pick up right in the middle of what Paul is saying. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. I don't think, I, I, don't raise your hand, I don't guess. But uh, I'll raise mine. Now, my daddy used to whip me with a belt. It was on the backside, uh, and I appreciate it. and glad he did. But I doubt any of you have ever been tied to a pole and had your hands tied above your head and whipped with a cat of nine tails, 39 stripes across the back. Don't raise your hand because somebody might go to jail if you, if you tell them. Now, but Paul says five times. Five times, Paul said, was I beaten with 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I had been in the deep. In other words, in one of those shipwrecks, he floated in the ocean for a night and a day before anybody found him. And by the way, this is not the famous shipwreck over in Acts that we're going to read about in a little bit because Paul wrote this when he was in Ephesus. He wrote back to the church in Corinth, which was about A.D. 57. He hadn't even gotten to Jerusalem yet when he was writing about those three shipwrecks. That doesn't even count the one that's in the book of Acts that we all know about. And so that one wasn't even counted. He says, three, A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in, hu in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Anybody want to sign up? I mean, wow. I mean, think of all that Paul is going through. 
And, I, and again, I'm preaching to myself this morning as well as I'm preaching to you, but I think how shallow is our faith. How shallow is our faith. We come to people and we try to convince them what a wonderful life Christianity is, just hoping that perhaps we'll get a convert. And I believe, my friend, that that's not the way that Paul did it. I look at his life and he preached the gospel. He recognized that men and women are searching for something to live for. And Paul found something to live for. He, he wasn't looking for his best life now. He wasn't looking for a better life. He wasn't looking to be wealthy. He wasn't looking to be prosperous. He wasn't looking to have a, quote, fulfilled life. He was looking to be a servant of Jesus. And that's what he was. He was a servant. And he was willing to do all of these things to put his life at risk because he was willing to sacrifice for someone, for something greater than himself. And I'm fully convinced. I'm fully convinced that we are hardwired with that. That everybody wants to believe and sacrifice for something. You look at the history of mankind. How easy it is for charlatans and for people to come along and to get people to follow them. And, and my goodness, some of you remember the Jamestown Massacre. Remember the folks, the guy out in California that, that said he was some kind of prophet and he took all these people to Africa, I believe it was, or somewhere, and... And uh, he convinced them to kill themselves. You know, that's where we get the... You've heard people give the expression, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. You know, you've been drinking too much of the Kool-Aid. They put poison in Kool-Aid. And they all drank that poison. Men, women, children. Why did they do that? I'll tell you, my friend, because that, that inward desire that I believe that, that part of us that is... As St. Augustine said, Lord, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are empty till we find our place in you. There's an empty heart, an empty part in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And everybody's looking for something to fill that void. And, and, and people try to find it in pleasure. They try to find it in power, in popularity. They look for it in many different places. And some people look for it in service to something, in dedicating themselves to something. And that's really what God planned for us to do. But we are to dedicate ourselves to Him, to serve Him. And some people find it by dedicating themselves to a lie, dedicating themselves to something that's not true. And so, my friend, don't cheapen your Christianity. By saying, I'm believing in Jesus so that He'll make my life better. Well, He will make your life better. I'd rather be a Christian than anything else I know because I believe it is the best way to live. But that is not the purpose. Jesus doesn't save us to make us wealthy. He doesn't save us to make our marriage better. He doesn't save you so you'll have a happy home. He saves you because you're lost and undone without Him. You, you are a sinner. You're condemned before God and you need forgiveness. And He died on the cross not to give you a happy life, but to make you holy, to remove your sin, to take you from a path of destruction to a path to righteousness and justice and love. That's why He died. So my friend, Paul lived a difficult life, but he did it for a higher purpose. He did it because he loved Jesus and he wanted to carry the truth of the gospel to those people. So anyway, the plot is foiled. As you see there in Acts, Paul, they want to kill him. And, and uh, the governor or the commander, uh, Claudius Lysias, I believe it is, he writes a letter. He puts half of his garrison, really, and he escorts Paul to Caesarea uh, to the governor. And I love this letter. And we're just going to take a moment because we talk about fake news and we talk about 
uh, you know, the spin, putting a spin on things. I love how the Roman commander spins this letter. We know what the truth was based on, remember how he, he went in and, and got Paul out of the, the temple and he thought he was an Egyptian terrorist and he was about to beat Paul to, to make him tell the truth, you know, under, under torture basically to who are you and what are you doing? And Paul says, oh, by the way, is it okay to, to beat a Roman citizen that's not been convicted? And everybody drops everything and says, oh, hold up, we didn't know you were a Roman citizen. I'm so sorry. And they, and they unloose him and everything changes. But notice how the Roman commander uh, listed. He says, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. That's not exactly how it happened, is it? Nobody told him it was a Roman. They, he just heard a big, a big riot going on. He runs in there and grabs him, and he's going to beat him, and then finds out he's a Roman. But I like the way the commander makes himself look really good. He's the, he's the hero of the Roman citizen. He rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. And I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Everything is pretty much in order, but he certainly makes himself look a lot better than the truth would be. He certainly appears to be. But really in that letter, he, he basically acquits Paul. He said, this man's done nothing wrong against Roman law. It's some question about Jewish belief and about their customs and their laws. And, and their, but, but it's nothing deserving of death or change. But anyway, I don't have the authority. I just send him, I'm sending him to you and, and you figure it out. Well... So they get Paul there, and in chapter 24, Paul now is going to have to give an account and defend himself once more. And it says in chapter 24 that after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullius, and these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, you know, if you're on trial, lawyers, they learn, one of the things a trial lawyer learns is how to, you know, pluck the strings of the jury. I mean, that's really all it's about if you're a trial lawyer. you got 12 people, 12 common people who are not lawyers, and they've, they're going to say that you're guilty or not guilty. So what that lawyer must do, really forget the facts. I mean, I mean, really. What he has to do is pluck the heartstrings of those 12 jurors and convince them to vote either guilty or not guilty for his client. And that's how cases are won and lost. Now, certainly evidence plays a part, but, but you've got to be able to talk and convince people and appear to people to be convincing and to be truthful and that they want to vote the way you want them to vote. Well, that, that's the way it was in those days, except you had one guy, and that was the governor or the king. So they had an orator, a good speaker, that the, the chief priest brought, and they said, we're going to bring our guy, and he, he can really just, I mean, he can lay it down, and we're going to put him up there, and he's going to convince the governor that Paul is guilty. So notice what Tertullius, the orator, says to the governor. And when he was called upon, Tertullius began his accusation saying, and I love the way he starts with flattery. You know, the old saying, flattery will get you everywhere. That's old Tertullius, and I want you to compare that to how Paul starts when he addresses Felix. But notice how Tertullius addresses Felix. He says, he says, um, seeing that through... You, 
We enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Yes, he was an orator. He lays it on Felix and tells him how fortunate the Jews are to have such a wise man as he in charge. How much prosperity uh, and how much peace and tranquility he has brought to them. That was far from the truth, by the way, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And he gives his accusation of Paul. He says in verse 5, For we have found this man a plague. I guess that is a description more than an accusation. You know, how would you like to be described? This man's a plague. He's the bubonic plague. He's smallpox. He's measles all rolled into one. If you want to know who this guy is, he's a plague. He's a disease. And then he really brings an accusation. For we found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now that first charge is pretty serious. What he really says is he is a person who stirs up sedition. He stirs up people. He is a troublemaker. And if there, were, if there was one thing the Romans didn't like, the Romans prized order above all things. Discipline and order. And if you wanted to get yourself in trouble, just stir people up and make people unhappy. And that's the first accusation. This guy is a troublemaker. He stirs people up. He gets people all bent out of shape. And secondly, they said, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now that was a description that the Jews often used to describe Christians. The sect would be like us saying it's a cult. And they viewed the Christians as a cult. This cult of the Nazarenes. He's one of their ringleaders. He's one of the leaders of this dangerous cult of the Nazarenes. And then they make another accusation. They said, he even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. And he puts a little black mark by the Roman commander. Remember Lysias? He evidently was not their friend because he spoke very positively of Paul. Notice how Tertullius mentions Lysias. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. So Tertullian says, you know, he just came by and just, you know, beat us about and, and with great violence he took this Paul out of our hands. He says, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself, you may ascertain that all these things of which we accuse him and the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So that's his accusation. Well, notice how Paul answers in verse number 10. Verse uh, number 10, it says, And Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch, this is Paul speaking now, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. I like the comparison. Paul didn't flatter the guy. He just basically says, I know that you're familiar with Jewish custom. You have been a governor and a leader in this nation for several years, and so I gladly make my defense before you. Compare that to the way this other guy just laid on the false flattery so heavy. Paul didn't do that. Paul was very honest, 
Very open. He says, Before, Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So Paul refutes all the charges but one. He's going to plead guilty to one of the charges that this guy has made. He says, I'm not guilty of inciting violence. I haven't incited a mob. I haven't profaned the temple. However, in verse number 14, he says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way, and that's how the Christians often refer to themselves, the way, the way. He says, according to the way, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. In other words, uh, Paul says, I believe the Old Testament. He didn't think of it as the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet. He says, I worship the God of my fathers. I believe the, the Word of God, the law, and the prophets. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. He says, After many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult, but they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. And here he is, he makes a little bit of an apology. He said, I, when I stood before them, let them say if they found anything wrong, except, he says, he says, except unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, saying among them, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Paul says there's nothing they can accuse me of that, I, that they claim. With one exception, maybe I did cause a little bit of a ruckus when I shouted out concerning the resurrection of the dead. This is the reason I'm here. And I, I kind of created an argument. And, and so uh, I'll, I'll accept that. Paul says I'm guilty of two things. Yes, I am a Christian. The what they call a sect of the Nazarenes, I call the way. And yes, I am a Christian. I am a follower of the way. And I believe in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the God of our fathers. And I try to live my life in an honorable way, knowing that one day there will be a judgment and I'll stand before God. That I plead guilty to and maybe I caused a little bit of trouble when I shouted out concerning the resurrection of the dead. That's the reason I'm here. But other than that, I'm not guilty of anything they say. But when Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, so he knew a little bit about this new faith, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Now, now notice Felix here. We're going to talk a little bit about Felix here in just a moment. And that's how we're going to close is, is Felix and Drusilla and what Paul says to them. But Felix wanted to please the Jews because that's how Rome judged him, how calm his area was. He knew that they were going to have uh, an absolute fit if he let Paul go. They were not going to stand for that. And so, you know, what do politicians and people in power and sometimes us in the church, what do we do when we have a controversial issue? 
Let's table that. We'll look at it later. Let's table that. Let's don't talk about that right now. We'll talk about that later. And that's what Felix did. Felix knew that there was no reason under Roman law that he could keep Paul in prison. Paul had done nothing against Rome. He should have let him go. But he knew that the people in his area would, would possibly revolt if he did that. So he said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait for the Roman commander to get here. And when Lysias gets here, we'll look at it again. Now, here's where we want to close. Last few words. He says, now after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. Now Felix was not a Jew. He governed Judea, but he was not a Jew. His wife Drusilla was a Jew. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning his faith in Christ. Now this wasn't, a, uh, this wasn't a courtroom setting. This was just Felix's curiosity. He wanted to know a little bit more about this faith in Christ. He had heard about these Christians. He knew a little bit about these people. And he, he just curious. He wanted to know more about it. Verse 25. Now as he reasoned, that is Paul... As Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Felix and his wife Drusilla, and this is how we're, we're going to close uh, this morning. Felix was governor of Judea from AD 52 to AD 59. We're talking about seven years there. He's an interesting guy because he was not of the Roman uh, aristocracy. He used to be a slave. Felix was a former slave, and, and he and his brother were slaves up in Rome. And they were freed from their slavery by uh, one of their masters who was involved in the royal family. And his brother was very highly thought of by the new emperor in Rome. They were actually good friends. And so when the former governor fell into bad repute and had to be replaced, he kind of tapped on the emperor's shoulder and said, You know, my brother Felix is a really good guy. I think he would be the guy for that governorship in Judea. So the emperor took Felix, who was a former slave, and made him governor over Judea. Now that might sound like a nice little fairy tale, hadn't it? Kind of like Cinderella, but unfortunately it was not. My friend, there are many uh, honorable persecuted people and there are many dishonorable persecuted people. And just because Felix was a slave doesn't mean that he was a good guy. He was not a good guy. As a matter of fact, one of the Roman historians, Tacitus, that some of you may have heard of, Tacitus made this comment about Felix. He said, With all manner of ferocity and lust, he wielded the power of a king with the temper of a slave. Tacitus said he had the mindset and the temper of a slave, but he wielded the power of a king. And what we know about his rule from from secular history, is that it was a very corrupt rule, as here Acts talks about him expecting a bribe from Paul, and that his, his, whole, his whole administration, the whole area was eat up with corruption and bribes. And because of that, crime began to increase, and he was also a very cruel person. We don't necessarily see it here in his interaction with Paul, but one of the reasons he was removed was he put down a rebellion in, in a very cruel manner, even by Roman standards. So we're talking 
about a man who was corrupt, he was violent, he had no honor. And Paul is reasoning with him, is speaking with him about righteousness. And what does righteousness mean? Uh, righteousness uh, simply means virtue, morality, and justice. And he's talking to this man who has no concept of that, and he begins to tremble. I like the way the old King James, the new translation says he was afraid. The old King James says, and he trembled. He trembled when he spoke to him of righteousness and of, of self-control and the judgment to come. Because if ever there was a man that should fear the coming judgment, it was Felix. He was a man who had much to answer for before a righteous God. But he's not the only one there. There's his wife, Drusilla. Well, maybe she was a calming effect. I see you don't know Drusilla, do you? Let me introduce you to his charming wife, Drusilla. Remember in Acts chapter 12, there was a king called Herod Agrippa I, and the Bible simply calls him Herod. Remember in Acts chapter 12, he's mentioned in Scripture, and it says, And Herod began a great persecution against the church. And he took James, the apostle, the brother of John, and he slew him with the sword. And tw Acts 12 says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews that he was king over, then he took Peter, and he threw Peter into prison. And that's that famous chapter where the angel comes and lets Peter out of prison. They're all praying for Peter, remember? And, and he shows up at the door knocking and tells the little servant girl, it's Peter, and she says, no way, he's in jail, because that's what we're having a prayer meeting, hoping he'll get out. You know, you know that story. Well, that was Herod. That was Drusilla's father. She was one of three daughters of Herod that lived to adulthood, and she was the daughter of Herod. And you remember in Acts chapter 12, it says that God slew Herod, that God killed Herod. He died very shortly after that, and we know that Drusilla from secular history, she was about six years old when her father Herod died. Well, when she was about 15, so they married her off to a... She was Jewish, by the way. She was Jewish. But they married her off to a king. His name was King Azaz. He was Jewish, had converted to Judaism. But when she was a couple of years older, maybe 17, 18, old... Felix saw her. And this is what Josephus, some of you remember Josephus. He was a Jewish historian of that period. This is how Josephus puts it. He says, while Felix was procreator of Judea, he saw this Drusilla and fell in love with her, for she did indeed exceed all other women in beauty. And he sent her a person whose name was Simon, a Jewish friend of his, who pretended to be a magician. And Simon endeavored to persuade her to forsake her present husband and marry Felix and promised that if she would not refuse Felix, he would make her a happy woman. Now, not Felix would make her a happy woman, but the magician. That by his, his spells, that, that if she would agree to marry old man Felix and abandon her other old man husband, the other king, that he would make her a happy woman by his spells and by his magician's work. He would make sure she would be very happy. Accordingly, this is Josephus now, accordingly she acted unwisely and because she longed to avoid her sister Bernice's envy, for Drusilla was very ill-treated by Bernice because of Drusilla's beauty, was prevailed upon to transgress the laws of her forefathers and to marry Felix. Now Felix was a pagan. He was not Jewish. You know anything about Judaism, you know that one of the great sins of a devout Jew is to marry a non-Jew. And that's exactly what Drusilla did. She abandoned 
uh, her husband Azaz, and she married the pagan Felix. And here she is as she listens to Paul. She's probably about 19, 20 years old. As she's standing there with Felix listening to Paul preach. And Paul says that Felix, it doesn't say anything about Drusilla, but Felix began to tremble when Paul spoke about righteousness and he spoke about self-control and he spoke about justice. Well, we don't know what happened to Felix, to be honest with you. He was removed by uh, the Caesar, but yet we don't see anything else really much about Felix. He just kind of died in obscurity. We do know what happened to Drusilla. She went and moved to a nice little community there underneath a beautiful mountain in Rome. You know what the name of the mountain was? Vesuvius. You ever heard of Vesuvius? You ever heard of Pompeii, Herculaneum? You ever saw on, on the National Geographic specials, they got those cases of the people who were, who were hit by, you know, the ash, and you got the perfectly encased? You might have been looking at Drusilla. Because when she, about 20 years later, when she was about 40 years of age, that's where she was. And we know that, that, that Roman historians tell us that she died along with her adult son, who was named Agrippa, in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. That's what happened to Drusilla. Paul had a chance to speak to this man, this Felix, a corrupt, violent individual. And his wife, Drusilla, who obviously had left a man just because she wanted to be happy, who was only thinking about herself, had abandoned all the laws of her forefathers. And here was a selfish woman, a selfish, lustful woman, and her selfish, lustful husband, who was violent. And here Paul is speaking to them of morality and righteousness and self-control. And that there's coming a judgment when everyone will stand before God. No wonder Felix trembled. No wonder he was afraid and said, uh, I'm going to change the channel, Paul. I don't like what you're saying. He said, go, go, go away. I, I'll call you another day. And you know, after a few days had passed, his fear abided perhaps, and he got a little curious, and, and, and the Bible says he would call Paul back and, and have discussions with him and talk about Perhaps more of what Paul wanted to share. We know Paul. He was sharing Jesus with him. He was sharing the gospel. But Felix was so corrupted. Felix, as far as we know, never changed. You know, if all you ever look for is something that tickles your ears, you're never going to be who God wants you to be. When you read something in the Bible and it bothers you, rather than not read that again, you probably should read that again. When you hear a message that convicts you, instead of turning that off, perhaps you should listen more closely. You see, again, God hasn't saved you to make you happy. He saved you to make you holy. Jesus didn't shed His blood so you could be wealthy. He shed His blood so you could be freed from the stain of sin. And you could be made righteous and holy. You say, Brother William, I just don't believe that. Well, my friend, I, you just don't believe the Bible is all I can tell you. That's what the Bible teaches. And my friend, perhaps God is speaking to you and to me today of righteousness, of self-control, and the judgment to come. Something in your life you know doesn't need to be there, God's going to hold you accountable. You know, the Bible says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. The Bible says that be sure your sin will find you out. 
No doubt there's some of you here today, you've got a secret sin. You know it's wrong. You know it's against the Word of God. You know it's against the will of God, but you do it anyway. And you assume that it's never going to, never going to bother anybody or hurt anyone. It is. It's hurting you. It's hurting you because it's come between you and God. Remember what Jesus said when the end of time comes and He separates the sheep from the goats? Remember, He's going to say to those that say, Well, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful works in Your name? And He's going to say, Depart from Me. I never knew You. You that practice iniquity, that practice lawlessness. Being a Christian doesn't mean you can live any way you want to live. It means that you've been called to live a holy life before God. Let's pray. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name. And Lord, we pray that You will convict our hearts. And God, that You will speak to us of righteousness of self-control, and of the judgment to come. Make us ever mindful that we will give an account of all that we do and say before you. And Father, I pray that for each of us, myself first of all, you would convict me and you would convict us of anything in our life that is displeasing to you, anything that does not honor the name of Jesus. And Father, we would be willing to do all that we can to remove that that does not honor You and to serve You in spirit and in truth. Father, if there's one here today that does not know Jesus, I pray, God, You would draw them today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing, if you're here this morning, you want to come pray, or you would like for me to pray with you, you just obey the Holy Spirit.